The Woach Pod is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Welcome back into the Woach Pod here with Gaudi Award-winning Hall of Famer Doris Burke, my colleague and friend here at ESPN. Doris, how are you? Excellent, Woach. Getting closer and closer to tip-off and... uh... You know, maybe the most extraordinary season in the history of the league. We thought the bubble was, was you know, the most fascinating professional environment of our careers. But the fact of the matter is this, this may turn out to be even more challenging, uh, even more disruptive. And I'm anxious to see how we do this. You know, we go into the season as broadcasters, Woj, not knowing whether or not we will be in arena or someone just arrived from ESPN two days ago to put in a home setup here at my home. Um, so I'm really curious, really curious what impact it has on the season, on the players, uh, on winning and losing. Yeah, it's funny. Everybody last year, Doris, in the heading into the bubble talked about, is there an asterisk on last season? Would there be one? And I think part of that was there was such a long gap between March 11th and the restart. And it almost felt like a new season in some ways. And then it was going to be this environment that nobody quite knew what to make of before they went there. But to me, this is, and I'm not a big asterisk guy. You play under the circumstances. Everybody has the same conditions and you go out and play. Uh, But this is the season where I think there are so many more variables. And we took for granted, Doris, as we got going in the bubble, that, there wasn't going to be an outbreak in the playoffs. You, you, once we got in the bubble and we realized that, that it just was not going to happen, the testing and the quarantines on the way in and, and how they had largely sealed it off, I think there was confidence that – I don't think people were waking up in the bubble thinking, well, let's see who tests positive today. There came a point where you thought this is going to be their team, who it is. That Well, now maybe by the playoffs – and vaccinations and some of those things, it's possible this season becomes that by the end. But we're going to be like what the NFL is and what baseball was, which is every single day uh, chasing down who tested positive, how long they're going to be out, what games are postponed, what star player is not available for 10 days, 12 days, what head coach may not be available. That's far different than what we dealt with in the bubble and teams are preparing for it and they know there's going to be a level of chaos this season. I distinctly remember reading an article back in the spring when this uh, virus first disrupted our lives. I do not remember whether it was the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times, uh, but essentially this topic was revisited recently in the sports media talk world. Essentially, the sports were watching the NFL, baseball, they're outside. Baseball, those players were distanced from one another. I remember the article saying the single worst sport professionally is basketball because it is a contact sport. There is a ton of communication. The virus is obviously airborne. And so every single day on every single play, uh, this virus could be infecting teams. And it's, it's disconcerting to think about um, and so how this plays will be fascinating. If in fact the target date for vaccine distribution widely across the country is April to June, what impact does that have, Woj, on the business of the NBA? I was reading Mark Cuban's comments the other day about 
he believes the Metroplex area will be so thirsty for uh, the ability to get to a game, to root for the Mavs, to see their, their MVP candidate in Luka. But I think it's naive and a mistake um, as a business to, to just assume that your fans are going to be in the same place mentally, financially, in all the ways we've all been impacted by this virus. Um, the business of basketball, you know, just like we wonder about the business of television as it relates to sports broadcasting, what is the long-term impact for all of us of this virus that is unknown and I take nothing for granted. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Doris. And I, listen, I get it in Dallas. They get to go watch Luka Doncic and they have a player who is a ticket seller, not just in Dallas, but anywhere he goes in the league. People are going to buy tickets and people are going to tune in to watch Luka. Most teams and most organizations don't have that kind of young star. Many don't. And those places, what is the impact going to be when you just take people out of the habit of spending and going to the games? They start to find other things to do with their money. We are in immense economic turmoil as a country. People don't necessarily have the money to go spend on what it costs to go to an NBA game. And I think that is, there's great concern around the league with uh, organizations and uh, different teams about fans coming back. And it was already a challenge in certain instances and especially teams who aren't very competitive and, and to me, I think it leads me into the question I was going to ask you about Giannis and the Supermax and him potentially signing in Milwaukee. I think that those scenarios where, you know, as smaller markets, if they continue to be unable to keep those kinds of players uh, there and lose them to other places, and I'm not saying that's what's going to happen with Giannis, but that's the challenge. Uh, what happens in Oklahoma City now where – Ever since the Sonics became the Thunder and showed up, they had Kevin Durant and they had Russell Westbrook and they had great young, they were like this young college team that was on the rise in a part of the country that was, you know, very conditioned on college sports. And they packed that building year after year. Well, it's going to be a very different time in Oklahoma City. And what does that look like in a market like that? I, I just think the challenges are great for the league. How We've seen it in television and uh, streaming and, and, and how people are watching and digesting the game. But uh, I think the Giannis thing, I get the sense around the league, people who don't have a rooting interest, people who don't, you know, they're not a fan of a particular team that hopes to lure him. I've always, I've sensed that there's a great, people are rooting for the Bucks to keep him because it represents maybe something a little bigger that's at almost at a crisis stage in the league. Well, I think what we've learned uh, is that the Supermax has, to me, almost no impact on the decision-making of these young men. They realize uh, that if they are a certain level talent, as Giannis is, that they are making generational level money anyway. They're impacting their family for multiple generations. And so as long as they have you know, excellent um, guidance financially with their agents, um, that 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 money, that supermax doesn't matter, that maybe it's the other things. It's what is Giannis's desire to be a champion? Does he believe Milwaukee, who obviously was aggressive, the acquisitions they made, 
trying to make sure they keep him. But Woj, what, what are the answers? What are the options for the league now that we know the Supermax has no impact? Like, where else can they go? That will be a question for the owners of the next collective bargaining agreement. I remember at the last CBA, smaller market owners saying, we didn't go nearly far enough. We've got to create even more financial incentive for players to want to stay. We've got to make it even harder for them to leave. Most of the league is made up by small to mid markets. They constitute the majority and have, you know, they are a voting block if you want to look at it that way. But they thought, and you just said it, the Supermax has not impacted the ability to, players have been shown a willingness to take shorter contracts, go back into it again sooner, and you can't legislate players staying in a small market. And by the way, they've, they've earned the right to become free agents. They've earned the right to leave. They've earned the right to play where they want to play. But the league needs 30 teams that are operating it. Listen, they're always going to be operating at different levels. But if the league is so top-heavy with star players in big markets, it does make it hard to be as vibrant as it needs to be. And so this is a league that will continue to try to figure that out. It does get back to having well-run organizations. And the counter to that is run your organization well, do a good job, make the guy want to stay. You know, the Spurs were always the example of that, but they also had very unique, Tim Duncan was a very unique star. That's Um, right. He was unique in that way. Now, and he almost, by the way, he almost left. He almost did go, although it was Orlando. It wasn't like he was going to LA or New York. But I think the Giannis, you know, the challenge for the Bucs is just selling him on winning because you don't have to sell Giannis. I, I know this about Giannis. His decision is not, do I want to be in a big market and have all the trimmings that come with, you know, Los Angeles or New York or wherever it is. I don't think that's part of his decision-making. I think it's at his core, he is immensely loyal. And I believe he loves the people in Milwaukee, loves that community. He loves the organization, he, but he wants to win. And that's what he's weighing. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand slams, web gems with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Should we assume, Woj, that given the fact that we're, what, 11 days from the deadline, should we assume that this isn't happening? No, no, not at all. Uh, I, I think he was in Greece right up until the start of camp. I saw his Instagram. <clears throat> yeah, it was neat. Yeah. yeah, he was in Greece, came back. You know, I know his, his agent, Alex Saratsis, they've talked. And, you know, he talked with the organization before he left. And they're in communication when they're doing deals. They're, they're asking him what he thinks. And I just think he knows what the clock is. Uh, December 21st is the date, which is right up to the start of the season. 
and I think he just wants to be sure. I, I think whichever decision he makes, sign it or not sign it right now, has, and he said it the other day, tremendous consequences on his career, as big of a decision as he's going to make. And so I don't think there's a need for him to rush into it. I think he'll, whatever he decide lands at, um, he, he knows he has the time here to decide. So I wouldn't read into it that, hey, it's not done, therefore he's not doing it. Uh, I just think he knows I'm going to take the time I have here. Uh, he shows up at camp. Now he gets a sense of, hey, how's Drew Holiday fitting in? What do I think of? They've made changes. He gets to practice with guys. I think that gives you a better sense, too, when you're trying to measure, can we do it? Now you're on the court with guys. And I think, I think you'd have to count that as a factor, too. Well, there's video. Uh, it might have been on uh, Giannis's social media. I can't remember where I saw it, but they were playing a little one-on-one. Uh, and Drew Holiday was checking Giannis. He sort of catches in the mid post. You know, now let's make no mistake about it. Giannis is one of the strongest players in the league. And yet there is Drew, you know, chest to chest, really physical, uh, pushed him off the box a little bit, forced Giannis to take a tough shot. And it was just vintage Drew Holiday. Like I thought, okay, you know, he's getting a sense of what, you know, the peers of Drew Holiday believe that this guy is elite defensively, you know, one of a handful of guys like that. And maybe I'm naive here, Woj, and you tell me your perspective. Let's just, you know, the supposition that he doesn't sign it before December 21st. You know, Milwaukee has been obviously so successful in the regular season. I do think that there is strength in that organization. And I am I naive to believe that the character of the individual, meaning Giannis and how he will handle the idea that maybe he doesn't sign it, that it, that it shouldn't impact that group. Maybe it would somebody else Um, because I believe they have the strength in the organization and certainly with bud coaching and, and who Giannis is as a person and all the attributes you just alluded to um, not that there won't be that sort of, something in the air, but do you believe that they have the strength to handle it if he doesn't sign it? I think they're equipped. They're, they're, they're better equipped than maybe some other teams are to, to do it. He's been there. They do have, there's close relationships, but, and I also think it might be a little easier if he doesn't sign it, you go into a season without fans in the building. You don't have that noise. You don't have the daily media scrum that you have, with a player like Giannis going town to town. It's just these guys are getting on Zooms for a few minutes and it's easy to shut it down. So I think it's less, that becomes less of an issue. History tells you when that player doesn't sign going into the last year, typically he leaves in almost all cases. Right. Uh, And so you know that you're up against that if you're the the Bucs. But I'm curious, Doris, having watched the Bucs in the bubble, and they got off to a difficult start against Orlando in that series yeah. uh, and then struggled. Then Giannis got hurt. They were already down in the second round when Giannis got hurt. What did you see with that Bucks team? When you think of what, where they had to improve, what, had to, what has to change for them to, to go from being a dominant regular season team yeah. to a team that can advance and, and go uh, deeper into the playoffs, win a title? You know, here's what I'm very curious about because – you know, um, they, they play a certain way. So you can go to their practice facility and see the five designated spots that they're supposed to run to. Deep corners, 
you know, um, above the break threes. And so they're trying to space the floor, surround him with shooting. Obviously, their defense was elite. Protect the rim at all costs. Protect the paint. Give up selective threes. I saw uh, Zach Lowe mention this, and I was fascinated by it. I believe it was on the jump. But he said, what I think you will see is that the Bucks will make a concerted effort to develop other aspects of their game over the course of this 72-game season because one way will not win in the playoffs, especially when you only have one star to the level that Giannis is. As good a player as Chris Middleton is, I mean, no disrespect, but it's not LeBron and Anthony Davis-level talent there, right? It's Giannis, and then there's a drop. And so I, I believe that's critically important. What is your next offensive weapon going to be? Is Drew Holiday in more pick and rolls? Um, is he more of a focal point offensively? I was looking at his numbers um, offensively and thinking, I've always felt Drew is a little bit underrated, more so on the defensive end, believe it or not, because he's not always first team you know, NBA defense. So I, I thought that was really fascinating to me and something that's got to happen, like, what is your next option when they completely shrink the floor, when they you know, send multiple at Giannis and make them play in a crowd and the floor shrinks? You've got to be able to go to the next level of your offense. And the fact that they will start it now is critical. And it's so funny. I can't remember it was the start of this past year or the year before, but I remember asking Mike Budenholzer something along the lines of, uh, you know, hey, would you invert Brooke into the post? Would you consider X or Y? And he said, I have to be willing to do that, you know, with a smile on his face. And so that's fascinating. Like, and listen, this is the process of becoming a champion is figuring out where, where did we fail? What's next for us? So I'm curious about the Bucks. Boy, the weight of this decision for Giannis, like as much as the James Harden situation in Houston is, is hovering in the air of the NBA, you know, we've got 11 days to know if Giannis is going to sign the Supermax. And, and here's the thing too, Doris, and I think I remember there was another player years ago who was in a similar situation, not quite the caliber of Giannis. And, you know, somebody around him said, hey, listen, you know, sign, the, get the money now, fix the destination later. Meaning yeah. in this league, if you want to get a trade, yeah. you can get a trade. And maybe not in the first or second year of the deal, but take the extension, uh, take the massive amount of money more that is guaranteed. And then if you want out, you can ask. Now, I don't think he is wired that way. I think when he gives his word on a contract, I think that means something to Giannis. And I'm not saying that's how he should approach it or that he will approach it, but it is also a reality of it that yeah. – you can sign the contract and know I may not be here for the full five years. If I decide that I don't want to be here, uh, that is the thought process of some guys. I don't know that it is Giannis. And, and you mentioned James Harden. And that's the other thing hanging over the league as we start the season. I don't know that we'll have a resolution of it as quickly as we'll know with Giannis signing or not signing. I think the Harden situation could drag out. I think there are so few real legitimate trade partners for 
the Rockets because two things have to happen. The team trading form has to believe generally if they're giving up a ton of assets that they're going to have them longer than just the two years. They don't want to trade for them. Have them in a season when you have no fans in the building. You're not even selling tickets anyway. And then have them leave on you. And then if you're the Rockets, you want to trade them to a team that can give you some combination of a great young player or just a wheelbarrow of draft picks. Ideally, you'd get both. And sometimes you give a little on one end. You don't get quite the player you want, so you get more picks or pick swaps. You kind of know what a deal looks like. So if James Harden wanted to go to the Lakers or Clippers, he really can't. They don't have, they don't have the picks to give up. They don't have the players, the young players. If you're Houston, you're like, well, there's not really anything you want to uh, do with them. They have older star players and that they're not trading. So uh, it gets back to, is it Brooklyn? Is it Philadelphia? Um, you know, some other teams could get involved, but other teams who'd go, I don't know if he wants to stay with us. And I think that's the challenge of this hard thing. And I do think it's why it's probably going to take some time and why Houston knows we can slow play this. We have him under contract for a couple of years, but we slow play it at the cost of what? Is he going to be disruptive every day? Is he going to come in engaged, locked in? Is he going to do it how those are the questions I think Houston has to wait and see what's the day-to-day like with James Harden and to see how long they want to wait this out. You have to hope that this man who believes he is a virtuoso and believes that people will really celebrate what he has been to the league after he's gone, uh, sort of maybe similar to Allen Iverson where, you know, he's almost become this mythic figure and, you know, I love how Allen sort of just celebrates and embraces all these young players in the league when he, when he sees them and just gets such joy. But the person I feel for is Steven Silas. And I think when I, when I've interacted with Steven, the one thing that strikes you is how even tempered he seems to be. Doesn't get too high. Doesn't get too low. He's been highly respected for such a long time, but consider that, um, you know, John Wall, I think his first full practice was their opening practice Mm -hmm. for the first time since December of 2018. Like John Wall hopes to become that all-star player and as impactful as he was, you know, same with DeMarcus Cousins. You're talking about two guys with this extraordinarily steep hill to climb to get back to where they were as all-stars. And the fact that Steven is trying to go back to a more traditional defense where you're playing with a big, that he was in charge of, the single most efficient offense in NBA history last year and all centered around a player like Luca touching the paint, spraying it out and the brilliance that is Luca. And now you've got this hovering. So you have to hope that James Harden, you know, whose MVP candidacy has been rock solid for what is it now? Six, seven years. The guy's been extraordinary. It has to be about him caring about his individual legacy. I I think he loves to play. I think he loves the game and you've got to hope he's a pro. You just have to hope he's a pro. And what I wonder is, you know, he's to James's credit, Woj, here's a man who has perfected his craft. He has manipulated the rules to, to enhance his individual skill set. but you pay a price to get there. Did he come back with something? Or was his mind disrupted because of the situation? I saw your reporting that said, you know, maybe he doesn't believe that they're still capable of winning a title as he used to believe. 
I, I'm really curious to see what they get from James Harden, but I feel mostly for Steven Silas, who's, you know, embarking on, on year one in this, in this organization. Yeah, I, I think Steven's handled it pretty well. It's not an easy – you're talking about a player you haven't coached yet who you don't have a relationship yet with, but you also have to sound like the head coach and not sound – and I thought he has walked that line of being firm – and hey, it's a holdout and he's not here and I'm not sugarcoating that, but at the same time also not, you know, not wailing on him either. And so it's right. a fine line for a new coach. Yeah. It would have been a fine line for Mike D'Antoni who coached him for four, for four years. The one thing about James Harden, <laughs> and, and it's funny, he is able to, like there's a couple of days off between games and he can leave town and go to Vegas or go to somewhere and hang out, do his thing, come back, maybe not go to a practice, and put up a 40-point triple-double. Right. Just do it and you just say, okay. That's And the guy plays hurt, and the guy plays every yeah. night. He doesn't right. want he doesn't want nights off, and he doesn't want you to limit his minutes. Like, he, there's a lot of uh, – there's a lot to admire with that and uh, how he's approached it. But, yeah. but it creates – but there's also, though – what happened in Houston was there's there's a lax environment and 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 I'm understating it. It is beyond lax around him that where he has had a lot of voice in practice and when are we leaving and are we staying an extra day in that town, which other stars have in the league. Right. But while James can perform and still perform at a high level in that environment. Not everybody else can, and other right. people do need the structure. Russell Westbrook came in there. That was very difficult for Russell Westbrook. Things weren't starting on time. Things weren't happening in the structure that he had been used to at OKC. Right. And that wasn't the best environment for him. And so now as Harden comes back, and the people in Houston know it. They, they know that they've enabled it. Every organization enables it on a certain level with great players. You do give them more freedom. You have to. Uh, but now it's there's a reckoning now in Houston of, okay, if we want to rein this back in, if we want to change, I hate that word, but change the cult, would start to change the culture. And, and we're going to have to do it differently moving forward. Like, can you still do that with James Harden on your roster? There's just a lot of questions for them with this. I, I just think it's impossible to to pull that back. It's why you see often the habits established early are so critical. And then when you loosen the reins, how loose how loose do they get? What's the strength at the top of the organization? Like Woj, come on. They're, they're not, you can't pull that back. The expectation is the expectation for James. I just don't see it. And and really you just brought a picture into my my mind. I remember Royce Young's piece on Russell and how Russell in all of his years in Oklahoma City had the same parking spot <laughs> arrived at the exact same time. And for someone who, you know, Ray Allen used to talk about being, he goes, you know, I'm borderline OCD. Like oh. that's me. I need that r routine and the rhythm. And what a striking contrast you know, Russ's modus operandi and James's hardens. <laughs> it's really pretty comical to think about. Doris, you mentioned Ray Allen, and it reminds me of, you talk about habits and routine. 
I covered Ray Allen at UConn, my yeah. first for the Waterbury Republican American. One of the I think the first one of the first stories I ever broke was Ray Allen pivoting to UConn over Alabama. I remember that. I had to wait till the morning papers the next day to see if I had broken the story or not. Like you get all the papers and see if anybody else had it. It was a very different time. I, and, I think there's news breaking while we're on the pod, so you better circle yeah. back and touch on anything <laughs> if it happens. <laughs> But, uh, but Ray Allen, it's, a, and I, I told, I've told him this later in his career. So I remember leaving practice would be over at UConn and he was an 18 year old freshman and everybody else had left and we would stay Les Carpenter, who's at the Washington post, a good friend of mine, we were competing papers then, and we would be in the media room and we'd write our stories after practice and pack up to leave. And I remember seeing Ray in the gym in Gamble pavilion. So I'm leaving at six, six 7, seven, whatever it was. And Ray would be back in doing form shooting in front of the basket practice had ended. He probably, he might've left an eight and came back and there he would be in the gym empty doing his form shooting, you know, four mm. feet out and five feet out and six feet out. And I remember exactly 20 years later, I think he was 38 years old in a playoff game in Boston garden um, or maybe almost 20, whatever his last season was with the Celtics, however old he was. And I remember I get to the arena really early, four in the afternoon, and it's empty. And there's just Ray Allen doing form shooting in front of the rim in another empty building 20 years later, exactly the same way he did at 18 years old. I, I owe, when I think of Ray Allen, I think of that. Yeah, no doubt. And you wonder what he's doing in retirement. It probably, you know, he's, he's got some charitable endeavors on his golf game, but you know it's regimented, whatever it is. The hardened thing. That hangs over the league. And now, you know, the team that it's funny, we, we talked about how it was all going to work last year with the Lakers coming into the season. And yeah, it was as if LeBron and Anthony Davis had played together forever and all right. the pairings in the league, like how's Kawhi and Paul George working? How is, uh, how is Westbrook and Harden going to work? And it was if LeBron and AD had been playing together forever from the moment they got on the court, it was seamless and they win a championship and I would make the case. I'm curious what you think they've improved. The, it is very rare that an NBA defending champion, because usually you're limited by payroll and moves yeah. and the defending champion, I think comes back better. I think they improve themselves and um, that's, that's trouble for the rest of the league right now. Yeah. Well, there's something about uh, how different someone feels LeBron obviously already had it, but Anthony Davis, when we see him for the first time, he is wearing a, being a champion and I, that has an impact on you. Um, and so I am very curious, you know, what's fascinating and your wonderful producer and I were talking uh, before your arrival into the pod. And I sort of mentioned PJ Brown and his influence in such a brief snippet of time on the Celtics last championship with Doc Rivers. And it was like a four or five minute stretch of the game where, and I don't remember who he was guarding in the post, but I remember this juncture because I was new to the project as the, the reporter on the uh, finals. And just Mark and Jeff making the point like this critical stand while this guy's guarding in the post is crucial. So you think, Woj, about the snippets of time where Dwight Howard and his presence was impactful in their run to the championship. And the same with Rajon Rondo. I do think they got better. Um, Dennis Schroeder 
I am so curious to see what influence he has. He believes he's a starter. You know, is he a starter? And there's a player I would point to, and I, I, I'll use LeBron's mention uh, of the player he thinks could take the biggest jump, that Kyle Kuzma. And I say that because Kyle Kuzma a year ago, and I wonder if it was Jared Dudley in his ear, seemed to recognize that on a championship caliber team, there is no room for wasted possessions. There is no room in that sort of environment and pursuit for an ill-advised 17-foot shot. I don't care when you take it or where you take it, but it's those little moments of time that can define success or failure in the crucible of a playoff battle. And so I'm curious what LeBron was telling us there and what Kyle Kuzma has learned, because I do think you saw great growth from him a season ago, though probably understated. And I'm curious to see where he goes, because I think he's got talent offensively. I think he's starting to compete consistently defensively. I do think the Lakers got better, Woj, and I'm really curious. You know, you're now talking about LeBron with four titles. And that legacy just keeps growing extraordinarily. It just keeps growing. Yeah, and for Kuzma, and it's great insight on Kuzma, then he potentially has the challenge of he's up for his rookie extension. And the Lakers, you know, they could get one done. They could not get one done and he could play the year out and become a restricted free agent next year. That's always a challenge for a young player, especially when you're a role player somewhere. And sometimes your contract can be based on numbers and you you hope it's based on impact on winning and, and the role you play. But that based on whether they get an extension done or not is an interesting part of like the mindset of he he's got to have coming back um, or maybe they, maybe they get one, maybe they get one done. Um, uh, Leave me with this Doris. Who's the one team that you're excited to see this season that has improved or changed and you go, I want to see what that looks like. The Denver Nuggets, because the Denver Nuggets, you know, I remember again, Zach Lowe's piece on sort of giving, Jamal Murray, that extension, which I believe is that kicking in this year or did it yes. kick in? Yeah, it kicks in this year. Yes. And there, that was, you know, that they, that was a big decision and he proved his worth and, and the experience that they had in the long haul of the playoffs, having to overcome those deficits, the kind of grinding, hard thought, just, I don't want to say the way I want to say this because it's inappropriate, but you know what I'm talking about, the battles they had to endure. And now we saw Michael Porter Jr. You know, get exposed at times defensively. Jamal Murray the year before was exposed. Remember the Portland Trailblazers took him to the post mm-hmm. and forced Mike Malone to pull him off the floor because he couldn't guard in the post and they were just putting it to him, the Trailblazers. But Jamal Murray said, I'm not going to be that guy. I won't be that guy. What was Michael Porter Jr.'s response to what they did? Because we know this guy's a shot maker. He's a player. Like when he pulled up from three and stuck in LeBron's face, I remember in the bubble thinking to myself, holy, (laughs) I cannot believe that guy just made that shot. Like I was stunned. So he's so talented. What happens with bowl bowl? Like, 
I can't wait. I see video coming out of there. I'm reading their local guys. I'm thinking, wow, man, is this guy going to be it? And we, because we know what we're getting from Murray and we know what we're getting from the Joker, but I'm really curious about the Denver Nuggets. I'm sort of picking a team that we're not all talking about, but the, the Nuggets fascinate me. They really do. Yeah, they do. They're so talented and so deep. Tim Connolly has done such an extraordinary job of gathering talent. And, you know, Monty Morris just does a $27 million extension. Yes. Today. He was the 51st pick in the draft. Those guys aren't supposed to even be on your roster. They're not supposed to be on the roster, never mind in the rotation of a Western Conference uh, finalist. The guy, every year they steal somebody. Porter drops to them. They grab Porter. Bo Bowl drops. They make a trade and bring him in. And who's yeah. that guy this year? Is it RJ Hampton, who people right. thought was going to be a top five pick going into the year? He drops in the draft, and all of a sudden now, and they don't need anything out of him. So RJ Hampton, they have he has time to practice, develop, get better. They don't need him to come on the floor and impact them for a year or two, just like uh, Porter didn't have to in this first year. And that's how you, in a like that's how you do it. That's how you run. Uh, that's how you draft, get players better. Uh, we could probably find four or five more of those kind of teams. Oh, yeah. Doris, I'm going to yeah. let you get out of here on that yeah. one. Fun catching up. It is hard to imagine. I feel like it was just yesterday. I was waving to you in your <laughs> perch and your yeah. perch up high in the bubble. We couldn't right. get we couldn't get uh, we were in different whatever tiers. We couldn't be side by side and talk. And now there's games this week on Friday starting this weekend, which is remarkable. But uh, great to have you back as always, Doris. And, and I know we'll talk soon. Good to visit with you, Woj. Go break some news. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, ESPN's Hall of Famer, Doris Burke. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure also to listen to the Low Post with Zach Lowe and the Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. We'll catch you again soon. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.